Guys, I'm really excited to begin. This, this is the official beginning of our official summer sermon series. Um, we just wrapped up sort of a short little mini-series that we entitled Trust Issues. It's all on the website, gracecityportland.org, if you want to check that out. But this morning, we're going to begin uh, a series that we've entitled The Classics. And what we're going to be doing is looking at all of the Old Testament classic stories. Now, I won't do a raise of hands, but I think we're at a point in history, a point in Christendom where it's safe to assume not everyone here grew up going to Sunday school every Sunday. Is that fair? I get laughs? Yeah, absolutely. That's fair. That's real. That's a safe assumption to make, which means what we understand about some of the most epic and theologically significant stories that we find sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, uh, many of us know very little about. In fact, what we do know has probably largely been shaped by whatever movie we saw or just what we picked up in pop culture, pop theology. Is that fair to say? So we're going to go through the classics this summer. And just to, to give you a little sneak peek, I'll name off a few that we'll be going through. Uh, David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah, the walls of Jericho, crossing the Red Sea. One of my favorite, Abraham and Isaac. My son is named Isaac. The Tower of Babel, Daniel and the lion's den. Slightly more obscure one, Elisha and the widow. You guys remember that one? Jacob's wrestling match with God, Moses and the burning bush. The Ark of the Covenant, and this morning, Noah's Ark. Nothing like starting off the classics with a classic. <laughs> Noah's Ark. I think the kids did Noah's Ark last week, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm getting a nod from Jess. Thank you. So, why, why do this? Let's just, let me get, intro it very, very quickly. Why do we do this? Other than the fact that, I mean, doesn't it just sound really fun? I mean, it's the classics. But more than just having a bit of fun over the summer, guys, these are the scriptures that Jesus himself grew up on. These are the stories that shape the people of God and their understanding of who God is and what Yahweh is like. These are the stories that the people of God would have found their frame of reference in understanding and anticipating the coming Messiah. These stories are meant to frame our understanding of who God is and ultimately who God reveals himself to be in Christ. These stories are more than just stories. These stories are the beginning of the revelation of God. And I hope that even if these stories are extremely familiar, that as we look at them again, our eyes will be open. We'll be like the disciples walking with Jesus, unbeknownst to them, walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus post resurrection. It says that Jesus opened the scriptures to them, began to explain to them that all of these things were actually about Him pointing to the true revelation of God in Christ. 
So these stories are more than the stories. They are deeply significant and packed with theological richness in our understanding of God and ourselves, I might add. So, you guys ready to do this? Thank you. The classics. Um, Genesis 3, just to give us a little context, is when sin entered the world, the fall as we call it. Uh, We actually talked about that last week. The temptation, giving into temptation, that happened. Sin entered the world. The world was cursed. It's interesting to note in Genesis 3, it didn't say that God cursed the man or the woman. It says that God cursed the serpent and God cursed the ground and said now it's going to be really, really hard for the man and the woman. Ten generations later, enter Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Let's just jump in right there. Ten generations later, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Pause there. How do you feel, how do you feel about the wrath of God? Pretty scary. scary. Like not a yay, like that sounds great. No, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And I don't, I really shouldn't make light. It's absolutely terrifying. Arguably, depending upon your context, your cultural context, um, problematic problematic, Um, could be very comforting, depending upon, I mean, if you're living in in an oppressed situation, where for you, when you think of God's judgment, you think of justice, you think of liberation, you think of a God who is capable of executing justice against evil people, oppressors, those who would deprive or take advantage of orphans and widows, And so the thought of God pouring out his wrath, executing justice on those who would do evil to the innocent could be an incredibly comforting thought. I think in our context, though, we tend to sort of wrestle with this idea. Yeah, but I thought God was loving. And and is this that whole like Old Testament versus New Testament thing, angry dad versus loving Jesus? Is that, but someone told me once that was heretical, so and it's problematic. I want to point out something that I think is very important and helpful about understanding the nature of God's wrath because I think we all know what's about to happen next, right? What we've just read here is describing a God, Yahweh, the Lord, who looked upon his creation, 
saw how terribly bad it had gotten. That the evil was continually on the heart of man. He saw it and he was grieved to the heart. Before anything else happens, before the flood, before the destruction, before God's wrath is poured out, we need to note the context. God was grieved to his heart. This this is not an example of a a vindictive or uh, retributive God. This is a God whose, whose sin breaks his heart. This, if you're a father or mother or an uncle or something, if you've ever spent any amount of time with kids, when you think about this, it makes perfect sense that God would ask that we think of him as father, as father. When my kids are committing acts of evil against each other, which they do all the time, (laughs) does it make me angry? Oh, so angry. Oh, so angry. Do I want to just kill them because I'm annoyed? Do I want to just execute justice because I'm bothered? No, because my, it breaks my heart to see my children sinning against each other because I love them to death. I love them to death. This is the context for what is about to happen next. This is not vindictive wrath. This is not retribution. This is a God whose heart is grieved over the sin of his beloved creatures when they commit sin against one another. God's wrath is his love violated. And what of Noah? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. The first time righteous appears in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, Noah was a righteous man. The Hebrew word is Sadiq. It's also translated as just. Interestingly, interestingly in the New Testament, uh, the word righteous in the Greek is, um, it's, sorry, dikaiosine. I had to retrieve it from my mind palace. <laughs> dikaiosune, or dikaiosine. It's the Greek word for righteous, also translated as just or justified in the New Testament. These words, righteous and just, are are synonymous. And the reason why this is important, because typically when we think of righteous in our Western mindset, we immediately go towards morality. We think that he must have done something especially good or nice. He must have been a moral man. Maybe he was. We do know that after the flood, the first, well, one of the first things he does is create a vineyard and make some booze and gets naked and drunk. So not super moral, not to judge. But he did that. All we are told 
is that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And therefore, Noah was considered to be a righteous man, blameless. That word blameless, again, it's not so much to do with like his moral character. It's more to do with integrity. It's more to do with wholeness. It's more to do with, he, was, he wasn't a liar. He wasn't two-faced. He wasn't pretending to be someone he wasn't. He was himself before God. And he was considered righteous and trusting. He was considered righteous and he was the man who walked with God. Um, if you've taken transformations, this should, this should begin to ring some bells. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it mean to, to be right with God? Does it mean somehow you've ticked off all of the boxes? Getting some nods, yes, wrong. No, sorry. Does it mean somehow you're better than the person sitting next to you? Um, I don't know, maybe you are. I don't know. Probably not. Or does it have something more to do with following God? Does it have something more to do with walking with Jesus? Trusting him? Leaning on him? Finding your identity in relationship with him? This, this begins to point us in the right direction. Let's keep going. Next slide, please. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. We have established that. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And then in verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Verse 22, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. How do we know that Noah trusted God and was thus considered a righteous man? How do we know he trusted God? He did everything God told him to do. Faith and obedience always go together. So obviously the question on all of our minds now is, What about the dinosaurs? <laughs> right? That was your question. Hmm. Well, what about the dinosaurs? I'm sorry, guys. I don't think this has anything to do with dinosaurs. In fact, if we can just sort of remove ourselves from, I don't know, whatever... I don't mean to make fun, right? I know that some people actually have that question. It's a serious question. But let me just make this point. Guys, it's obvious 
that what the scriptures are telling us here is not this sort of succinct list of historic data. Okay, we're reading about God whose heart is grieved. Okay, that's more than just historical data. It reads like, it reads like a myth. Not in the fictional, untrue sense. In the sense that God is wanting us to understand something much more, much more meaningful than just like ancient history. God wants us to understand, most importantly, something about himself. Something about where the world has gotten to, where it went wrong, and how he feels about it. Okay, so I think we just need to forget about the dinosaurs. Okay, sorry if that just drives you crazy. I don't think God is wanting us to ask questions about dinosaurs at this point. I think what God is wanting us to focus our attention on is the fact that the world that he created, that he loved, that he called good has gone terribly wrong and it grieves him to the heart so much so that he's about to do something drastic about it. He's about to pour out his wrath on the world to use creation itself to cleanse all of the violence and corruption. That's what we're meant to know. That's what we're meant to be thinking about now. Um, let me make a couple of points about Noah. Now, I'm told, I was told in seminary, I've been told many times, that when you read Old Testament stories, it's a big mistake to somehow focus in on like the, the man or the woman as the hero. Because we all know that Jesus is the hero. Um, but we also know that the scriptures have been given to us, particularly the Old Testament, um, the Jewish scriptures, as an example for us to consider who has related to God before us. What does it look like to walk with God? What does it mean to be in rebellion against God and be on the receiving end of God's wrath? And how do we, how do we avoid that? Because that would be really nice. And so I want us to focus in on Noah for a second, the man, not the perfect man, but the righteous man who walked with God and learned something about how he responded, something that we might apply to our own lives. And number one has to do with faith and family. Noah was clearly a man of faith. How do we know that? Because he trusted God and he built a giant boat. And if you do a little bit of math, it's amazing how many numbers are given to us in this story. Now, if you're a number cruncher, like myself, once upon a time, I actually got a degree in math 20 years ago. If you crunch the numbers, it took them about 100 years to build this boat. 100 years to build this ark, this container in which God was to rescue his family and a portion of creation in. What incredible faith. Could you imagine, I reckon God's not going to ask any of us to build a boat. Probably. But what if God was to ask you to do something? And he said, it'll probably take you your entire life. Half the time you'll have no idea what you're actually doing. Because it's just like so bizarre and just unintuitive but I want you to do it and I want you to trust me and if you do, 
through it, I'll save your family. Just eight of them. Noah plus seven. Three sons, three daughter-in-laws, and his wife. Do this. What faith? What vision? How many of us have ever had like a, like a faith for a day, vision for like 30 minutes, and you're like, yes, I'm gonna do this. God's put it on my heart. I'm gonna build it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna champion it. And then like what? A week later, moving on. <laughs> this, is, this is a lesson to be noted for sure. This is a lesson. A hundred years, Noah worked on this ark. He trusted God. He did something slightly crazy, my opinion. And God used it to save his family. Not only is that inspiring, but guys, for me personally, that's, that's hugely convicting. Because I have a family. I've got three kids. My wife is... God only knows, but I'm very confident she's saved. She's going to heaven. (laughs) I don't know about my kids. I mean, they're eight, seven, and four. They're they're still figuring it out. Um, I think they love Jesus, but they're still figuring it out. I pray for my kids uh, virtually every day. And I have some other family members that I don't pray for every day, but I wish I did. I wish I would every day for the rest of my life because I want to see my family and the people that God has put in my life, people that I love and care about, I want to see them in heaven someday. I want to see them walking with Jesus in this life. What's my ark? I don't know. Maybe it's just to pray every day for the rest of my life. And when it feels like nothing's happening, when it's not working, when it doesn't make sense, I just keep praying. I keep loving them. I keep reaching out. Maybe, maybe your vision, maybe your arc is something less, less abstract. I think prayer is a given. But maybe God will speak to you in some spectacular way, in a way that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And God says, I want you to build this thing. No one else is going to get it, but I'm giving you this vision. And you'll want to give up every other day, every other month. Every other year, after a decade goes by, you'll think, what am I doing? No one else gets this. But God has put it in your heart. He's given you the responsibility. Will you keep praying? Will you keep trusting him? Will you allow that vision to grow in a way that you just cannot let it go? In a way that keeps you up at night? In a way that it actually brings you to your knees? Because you know it's not gonna get built unless you continue to seek God's face, unless you continue to pray. Because in the kingdom of God, nothing gets built that's not of God. We don't do anything that doesn't begin and end in prayer. That's why Jesus said, you can't do anything apart from me. But if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, and fruit that remains. answered prayer, faith and family. <laughs> it should be noted that God did, in fact, fulfill this, uh, this word that he gave to Noah. hundred years later, it happened. It happened. God cleansed creation. The floodgates broke. The entire world 
I guess that's meant to be how we understand it. I've heard archaeologists and different people say, well, it was probably the region. I don't care. It doesn't matter. God flooded the earth. He cleansed creation of all the evil and violence. The flood came. So they got on the boat. You know how long he was stuck on that boat with his family? Again, crunch the numbers. Over a year. Over 365 days. You can just Google it. It's really simple. (laughs) Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and then like it happens? Like the thing gets built, you all get inside and the next thing you know, God, get me out of this thing. (laughs) Get me out of this thing. I, I think about that like this. Like, don't get me wrong, I love you. (laughs) But it's, okay, I won't go there, I won't go there. (laughs) What can I say? I was gonna gonna use marriage, I won't go there either. It's just family, it's just family. Something about family. You long for them, you long for a wife or a spouse or husband, you long for a church that you can feel like I'm a part of, I belong here, and then finally, God sticks you in it, and you're like, devil, like... (laughs) Like, I've been tricked. How do I get out of here? These people are driving me insane. And I cannot help but imagine that there, there must have been days where Noah was thinking, all eight of us not, might, might not make us make it out of this boat alive. <laughs> Did a wedding yesterday. Um, it was beautiful in Gold Beach. And, you know, there's always that bit, till death do you part. I think to myself, yep, yep, that's the only way out. That's the only way out <laughs> for you. <laughs> I love my wife. <laughs> Marriage is real. Till death do you part. Guys, um, that's just a bit of a side note, right? Oftentimes we pray, God, let your will be done. Use me. And we pray. And the next thing you know, like that person you've been praying for gets saved and joins your church. And it's like, ugh. Like, (laughs) you're super difficult. Like, this is like, can't you just find another church? Like, nope. That's family. So, let's, let's keep going. Genesis 8, a whole year later, Noah and his family finally exit the ark. So the water, uh, it rained for 40 days, um, and they stayed for like another 150 days. And I don't know, you do the math yourself, but they were on the boat for like over 365 days. Finally, they send out a raven, and there's all sorts of different thought about what the raven means, and it's very symbolic. No one really knows. Um, and the raven doesn't come back. Right, the raven's a scavenger. He takes off. So they send out a dove. Now, the dove is deeply symbolic. The dove represents the Spirit of God. The dove begins to hover over the waters. The dove comes back. They wait a week. Sends out the dove a second time. Comes back again, this time with an olive branch, which symbolizes peace. Peace has come on earth again. The picture is that God is starting over He's going all the way back to Genesis 1 when the waters covered the earth and it was formless and the spirit hovered over the deep 
And God began to form the land and began to populate the earth once again. God is starting over. And so he sends out the dove the third time. This time it doesn't come back. We don't see the dove again until, hold that thought. Let's go to the next slide. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He's gotten off the boat. What's the very first thing he does? He worships. He worships. What is the logical response to salvation? Because that's what you call this, salvation. What's the logical response? Worship. And it doesn't say he sang a song of I loved singing in worship this morning. Honey, you had me, you had me crying a little bit. I was only playing. You're a baby. Just playing. Worship, mission, and another promise. Let's keep going. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his family and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same thing that God said to Adam and Eve. He recommissions man. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This is what is referred to as the Noadic covenant. You don't talk about it much. Hear about the Abrahamic covenant. Hear about the new covenant. This is an ancient covenant that God made with his people. It's the rainbow covenant. It's the promise that God made to his people that he would never, ever destroy us again. He would never pour out his wrath in that way again. And he puts his bow in the sky. It's interesting. Might, might be taking uh, some creative liberties here. It's like someone was playing Bingo. He puts his bow in the sky. And he says bow, like a bow, like a warrior who's gone to battle, who's overcome evil, who's, who's undone the violence. And it says afterward, he hangs his bow in the sky, like a rainbow. Now pointing up towards heaven. A warrior king hangs his bow up, this time pointed towards himself. 
Salvation leads to worship and a new commission. And then God makes another promise. Never again is he going to pour out his wrath like that. He doesn't say he won't, but not like that. He makes a promise and he points forward. He points us forward. Guys, what we're going to see as we go through these classic stories, that each one of them is telling us something quite extraordinary about the nature of our God, how he's a rescuing God, how he's a God who's not afraid to deal with evil, to confront violence, to do something about the injustice that goes unchecked in our world. And time and time again, we learn how, although he acts like that, he keeps pointing us forward. A new thing's going to happen. It's going to be similar to that, but it's going to be different. Another rescue is going to take place. Another kind of judgment's going to take place. Another kind of salvation is coming. And all of these stories begin to build up and begin to paint this picture of the Messiah. Let me read to you a few portions out of the New Testament now. First Peter chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, not the physical act of baptism, but an appeal to God for a clean conscience because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 42. This one's on the slide. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. These are the words of Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken. It's the twos. It's the twos. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be in the grinding mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Okay, judgment is coming. God will cleanse the world once again in a final, ultimate, perfect way. And it will be like the days of Noah. but different. You remember the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, verse 17. He's quoting from the prophet Joel, chapter two, verse 28. When he stands up and he says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Jesus said that Rivers of living water will pour out 
of those who trust in him. It'll be a different kind of outpouring. It says in Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the awareness of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. The day of judgment that's coming, the time when the Son of Man returns to complete the work that he started, when Jesus comes back, there will be another outpouring. There will be another kind of judgment, another type of cleansing. Only this time, God will be pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the waters cover the sea because Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, it was like God opening the floodgates Only this time, instead of the whole of earth being wiped out, God himself became one of us. God himself took the punishment for our sin. Jesus became the ark of God and said, all who come to me will be satisfied, will be rescued, will find eternal life. I am the ark And those who are found in him will be saved. That's good news. That's really, really good news. That's the story of Noah's ark. One day, Jesus will return. And the final day of judgment will come. Will you be found in Christ? Like Noah, will you be found walking with him, trusting in him? Not trying to generate a righteousness that is your own. But in Jesus, will you be known as a favored child of God? One of his kids who he adopted because of his love. Can we stand together?